You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1 with me. Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have some in the back. We really want you to be in the Bible with us this morning. My words don't matter. It's His that do, so make sure you're looking at His, because, you know, you can't see mine anyway. So, uh, here we go. Uh, we're diving into week two of comfort and joy. So we kicked off this series last week, and we learned that the purpose of Dr. Luke writing this gospel, this, this account of Jesus the Messiah, the, the entire purpose was to give his readers a, an assurance, a, a clear-cut and dry proof that Jesus is who he says he is. And so what we did is we, we actually went a little deeper than that. We showed a sermon from a guy named Pastor Ben Stewart, who's the Passion City Church D.C. pastor, who went through this entire talk about why we can trust the Bible. Not just like this, you know, ethereal faith conversation, but like logistically, how can we trust all 66 books here and that every single word in here is the inerrant word of God and it has passed through generations to us? How can we believe that these words are the original words and the original intent that has come with them has reached us? And let me just say, if you, if you were not here last week to, to view that, Google it, right? Ben Stewart, why we can trust the Bible. In my opinion, it will blow your mind And it will give you assurance that you can know that the words that you read in this this Bible are are the authoritative word of God. They allow us to both believe and to trust in God. But look, I, I get, even after watching that, some of us may be sitting here going, I still have struggles. I still have doubts. I still have, I have questions and truthfully, if you're sitting there and you're going, I don't really have those right now, I, I think I'm pretty confident to say this. You will one day. Like, there will come a point in your walk with the Lord, and maybe you're not walking with the Lord now, and so you've got all kinds of questions, but there will come a point in your life where you will question God. You will have doubts of who He is and what He can do and what He's done. And how do we, how do we work through that? I think most of us in this room would say, hey, we believe in God. We believe in the Bible and all that it teaches. We believe that it is the Word of God. But here's the reality. We can believe, but we still struggle to trust. Do you see that tension where, where we can believe something, but we, we struggle to trust it? See, I, I think our tendency is this. The, the greater the size of the problems in our life, meaning the, 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 the bigger the issues that come our way, we have a tendency to reduce the size of God and increase the size of our ability to handle the problem. Let me say it another way. The, the, the greater the size of the problems that we have in life, the less we trust God and the more we trust what we see. Think about your life. When, when things have come fr- at you from all different directions, the tendency, right, is, is to do what? Is it to, is it to lean in, to, to wake up earlier and have stronger and longer quiet times, to, to give more, to serve more, to, 
to really trust in God more? Or is the tendency to go, well, you know, I, I, can, I, can, I can handle this. I, I can fix this. I can do these things over here to make sure that this issue gets resolved. And I can do these things over here to make sure this issue gets resolved. And so we come to this place of just kind of putting all the burden on our own shoulders. And, and here's what I think we do. Here's what I think we do. Imagine that this is a scale, right? So we come to faith in God, and when that happens, what, what, what happens is he becomes the cornerstone of our life, right? We come to faith in him, and he gives us nuggets of himself. He gives us wisdom. He gives us little pieces of who he is. I didn't want you to move yet, right? He gives us all of these things, and every time that we learn more about God, we grow a little bit in faith and in trust and in belief of who he is. And as we be begin to learn more and more and more about God, he fills up our bucket. And what happens? He becomes the bedrock of our life. Like he is, he is the foundation in which we find ourselves on. But life doesn't just work in this little vacuum, right? We, we can grow in faith and in stature in God. We can believe. We can even trust in him. But when the problems of this world come, what happens? They begin filling up our bucket more and more and more. And all of a sudden, I'm messing up Hunter's stage. Sorry, buddy. What happens? God is no longer the foundation. Because what's happened? The problems have filled our life and filled our focus and taken our time and there's so much and they just keep adding and they keep adding and they keep adding. God is still there, but he, he's really only there for this supposed miracle that's going to come, right? Like, because what we, what we tend to do is we trust what we can see, right? There's a problem in front of you. Somebody goes, hey, well, have you prayed about it? What's your response? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've prayed about it, but look, problems don't just go away, right? You said that? I have. Oh, you know, I've prayed about it. I've worshiped the Lord. I've gone to him, but I mean, look, God gave us like a brain and discernment, and so like we need to like work through how to resolve this issue. He's not going to just fix it. We, we have some responsibility, and what we're doing in that moment is what? We're not trusting in him. We're trusting in what we can see and what we can fix and what we can do. We're, in reality, we're kind of leaning on ourselves and the problems. So as we dive into week two in this gospel of Luke, we're going to ask the question, certainly, how can we find comfort and joy? That's, that's the title of the sermon series. But it gets deeper. How can we both believe and trust in God? How can we have full belief in who he says he is and trust him at that so that no matter what happens, no matter what problems come our way, he will always be our foundation. That's what we're going to dive into this morning. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. I'll have you stand with me as we read the first couple of verses. We're going to be in verse 5. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah 
of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. You may be seated. So here's what's happening. Dr. Luke is walking us through this, this passage. Remember, the first four verses, he writes that, hey, I'm going to write this so that you can have confidence in Jesus. You can have confidence in who he is and what he does. So he jumps right into the first account, the first story here. And what is he doing? He's giving us context. So if we remember that the purpose is confidence in Jesus, he's obviously leading us to that, but he's also giving us breadcrumbs to prove the veracity of what he's writing about. The, the, the efficacy, the, 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 the full weight and truth, that, hey, this letter is real. And so what he does is he begins by saying, hey, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. We read that and we just kind of gloss over it. But for the first century reader, this in second and third and the theologian, they would have gone, hey, this is kind of a timeline of what Luke is giving us. He's saying this happened, you know, King Herod ruled between 440 B.C. and 480. So right here, Luke is just taking all of time and going, hey, it definitely happened between this window. Most theologians believe it happened somewhere in the, 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 the last decade of B.C. So 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, you know, you can count down. But he's also looking to establish something else here. So he's giving us the veracity of the letter by kind of giving us a date. But then notice he switches and he starts talking about Elizabeth and Zechariah. And what does he say about them? They're, they're righteous people. He says that Elizabeth comes from the, the line of Aaron. This is, this is lineage. He's showing hey, these people are to be trusted. They are righteous before God. And then he mentions that they don't have kids. What is the significance of that? Well, to the Hebrew reader, this would have been very significant. Think back to the, the Hebrew text where there's a story of a, a couple who's maybe righteous and they seek after God and guess what? They don't have a child. So he's kind of cluing us into what's happening here. This is a very significant beginning point for Luke and for the reader that we can trust what he's saying. Verse 8, it says, Now while he, this is Zechariah, was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, what we need to see in this moment is that this is not mere happenstance or luck. Luke is explicitly mentioning this because he wants us to see God's provincial hand. Now, why is that significant? Well, I want you to think about the last time you said something like, man, that was lucky. Or you made a statement, man, I hope this never happens. Right? We do this. We're a little superstitious, or at the least, justitious, right? Thanks for the chuckle. Appreciate that. But we give so much credit to luck, right? We, 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 we have athletes who perform their, these rituals before their games. They don't wash their socks, and we have people who, who never wash their hands, and all these types of things. And what Luke is going to do here is he's going to highlight that God's will is going to be done, 
And he has chosen Zechariah to be a part of it. This is important. I, I used to be on a staff, a church staff, and the, the pastor of the church never wanted us to use his phrases like luck. Man, that was lucky, right? We could say we were blessed. We could say uh, we were providentially hindered from something. or we, we could use all these phrases. And at first I was like, man, this guy is just full of it, right? Like he's just like, who, what is this guy talking about? Like he just, well, why can't we say these? And then he sat me down and was like, well, here's why. I want you to know and I want you to believe and I want you to trust that God is in control. Like we say that we believe in the sovereignty of God and his providence and who he is, but do we trust it? Like do, do we actually think that he's moving in our life? So one of the things that we, we, we said on that staff was, Lord willing. Hey, I'll see you tomorrow for lunch. Lord willing, right? Now it seems like church talk, and I think on a, on, on a, like a level, it probably is church talk. But I do think there's also this other level it gets us to a deeper place of go, you know, our language and the way we speak matters, right? Well, if we talk about luck and all these other things, are we not at some point kind of telling ourselves that God's not in control? Whereas when we say, Lord willing, and yeah, when something good happens, yeah, God really saw that move. I think at first we might feel a little cheesy, but if you get down to the root and, and the, the truth of what we say we believe by putting it in words and putting it in action, belief moves to trust. And we're putting it in place to say, this is what God has done. And that is what Luke is showing us here in this moment with Zechariah. It wasn't just them throwing some dice on the floor and Zechariah's turn. No, God is in complete control of this moment. Verse 11. It says, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. This is an interesting part in this text. I, I think we have a tendency to read this and just go, that's just Bible talk, right? That's just spiritual stuff. But what we need to see throughout the, the, the narrative of Scripture is that this is a kind of normative response to the supernatural. We know that this angel is Gabriel because in a few verses, in verse 19, he's going to say his name. But what we're seeing in this moment is that the supernatural is witnessed. And when it is witnessed, it is, highly, it is a highly reverential moment. And it evokes great response. When the supernatural is witnessed, it is a highly reverential moment and and he falls on his face and, and and he's in fear you see this time and time again throughout scripture i want you to keep that thought in mind that when the supernatural is witnessed it's a highly reverential moment think about that now think about our worship gatherings on a weekly basis Why does it matter that we come ready to experience and to worship a living God? What impact should it have on us? Let me ask you this. When you entered into this building, were you expecting 
to have a supernatural experience with God. Right? When you were wrestling the kids out of the house, and they're biting your ankles, and they're crying because they didn't get enough cereal, or I mean, were you like, man, God's going to show up today at church, right? When you rolled over, you kind of did that stretch, you looked at your spouse, you're like, you want to go this morning? You know, kind of thinking, Waffle House, church, you know, that mimosa, whatever, right? Like, you're going, eh, yeah, let's go to church. We, we really going, wow, man, like, we're going to experience God. I, I, I hear people say this a lot. The Sunday morning plan is planned on the Saturday night. So the, the Saturday night decision will dictate what you do on Sunday, Sunday morning. So like when we come together as a body of Christ, as the people of God, are we really gathering expecting to see a supernatural move in our lives and in this place? Or is it just church? Think to Zachariah's situation. He's a priest, so he's spiritual, right? And he gets chosen to work. Do you think Zachariah was like, man, I'm going to have an, an encounter with God? Or is he like, well, I get off in like 12 hours, right? I got stuff to do. The yard's got to get mowed. I got to go get those groceries. Like, what do we think Zachariah was? Do we think he was like fully expectant to see and hear from a messenger of God, or we think he was just kind of going through the motions? It's just another work day. What would happen if we treated worship gatherings like what the Bible kind of shows us they can be? Supernatural encounters, right? I know that word is like, I don't know, fluffy and seems like crazy out there, but like you worship a God who is supernatural, Right? Like, he, he's, he's not just natural like you and I. He's supernatural. He, he's divine. He's holy. He's alpha and omega. He created all things. He's powerful. What would happen if when we came to church, we thought, man, I'm going to engage with him? What would happen if we, when we opened our Bibles at 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. or 9 p.m., whenever you do, and you go, man, I'm going to engage with the supernatural. What would happen if you as a Christ follower took, took the steps in your head and in your heart to know that I have the living spirit of God inside of me. I, I'm engaging with the supernatural. Would our worship look differently? Let me ask you this way. Would our worship gatherings look differently? Would they become less about our comfort and more about his adoration. I don't know if you know this, but churches spend thousands, if not millions of dollars every year to make comfortable worship environments and cool events. And we do it under the, the kind of the, the umbrella of the hopes to reach the lost. But what if part of the truth is that we did it because, at least in part, we wanted to keep our Christians happy and content. Like, if this building wasn't as pretty and our lights weren't as nice and my 
outfit wasn't just on fleek, right? <laughs> How would your experience with church be? Right? Like, do we worship God because the haze and the lights makes a really cool environment? And <laughs> or when we walked in this place as the people of God, united in one accord, and we're going to worship supernatural, living king who takes people from death to life. I think if we began to expect to hear from him in our personal walks, in our gatherings, man, we could begin to see more supernatural movements because as we harden our hearts, we also put scales over our eyes and we don't see him in the fullness of his glory. And this is what is happening to Zechariah. He's not thirsty for the presence of God. And we need to be thirsty for the presence of God. Verse 13. The angel said to him, so he's in fear. He says, do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and, you, and your wife Elizabeth will, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. In case you didn't know, this is John the Baptist's story, not Jesus's. That's your clue right there. His name's John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the Spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is the moment, right? Like this is the moment that Zechariah had been praying for. He had long wanted a child. He had long wanted to see the coming Messiah. He wanted to see the fruitfulness of God's kingdom. And before him, he has a messenger saying, it is time, right? Like this is the moment when this will happen. And Zechariah is sitting in front of this messenger going, my prayers have been answered. Imagine what it's like to receive something that you've been praying for. Not just like longing for or kind of thinking about, but you've been earnestly praying for something. And then God shows up and says, here it is. Like, he hears you. There's validation. You matter. That comfort and joy is overflowing from your heart. You've been praying to, to be rid of depression. You've been praying to be rid of sadness and darkness. You've been praying for that relationship to be restored. You've been praying for that child. And he shows up and says, here you are. But that's not Zachariah's response, is it? What does he do? Verse 18. Zechariah says to the angel, how shall I know? this. For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Hearing the answer of his prayers from an angel Zechariah doubts. 
How? 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 How could he have this foundation and belief in God, but yet the problems of him and his wife being old be too great for the one that created him? How can belief not translate to trust? How does this happen? I mean, think about Zechariah's situation. He's a priest. Like, he knows the Torah. He knows the Old Testament scriptures, forwards and backwards. So, like, he has a knowledge and a belief and an understanding of who God is. And if that wasn't enough for him, he's standing in front of an angel. Like, how many have stood in front of an angel? Please don't answer that. Right? (laughs) But, like, that's some pretty good evidence, right? You've got the Bible in front of you, like in your, no- in your noggin, in your heart. You know this. And then a messenger of God comes to you and you're going, yeah, but dude, I'm pretty old, right? Like, how's this going to work? And he denies what's happening. And he's too focused on the logistics and the problems of life to ever trust in what God could do. So what happens when we don't trust in God? Verse 20. Gabriel is speaking back. He says, And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Our disbelief will have consequences. Our disbelief will have consequences. For for Zechariah, they were sent by a messenger, and they were sent as a method of discipline to help bring him closer to God. You and I could experience that same discipline. We, we may simply experience suffering and loss because of our lack of wisdom. Proverbs 4.19 says, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness, and they do not know over what they stumble when we do not trust God, when we, when we don't fully believe and, and invest everything that we have into who he is, there will be consequences. Like you can still be found in Christ, you are still a Christian, but there will be things that come your way. It might be discipline, it might be suffering, whatever it is, there will be things that will make your life more difficult because you didn't trust in God. So what do we do with this story from Zechariah. I love how Luke ends this. Even through our disbelief, God is greater still. That's what we do. We know that even through our disbelief, even through our missteps and our failures and our shortcomings, God is greater still. Verse 24, after these days. So Zechariah has received the punishment. He's being disciplined for his lack of trust. His wife, Elizabeth, conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. 
What we need to remember in this story is that the blessings of God surpass the faithfulness of his people. The blessings of God surpass the faithfulness of his people. Even in your disbelief, even in your misstep and your struggle, God is greater still. So what do we do? What does it take for us to both have belief and trust? How do we accomplish this thing? Well, it begins by understanding that God is not a genie. And he's not somebody that needs to win our affections. When we get a right standing and a right understanding of, of who he is, that we're separated from him, we're, we're dead in our trespasses, we're, we're completely, utterly broken beyond our own repair, and we get a glimpse of the goodness of God. He brings us into right relationship with him when we've repented and believed. And when we've repented and believed, what happens is he becomes our cornerstone. He's not a pebble. He's not just some little exchange for, okay, now I know more about you, so now I can trust you. He becomes a rock. Now, there's still moments where he's paying dividends into our life, where we're trusting him more, and so we do that. Hopefully I can do this without dropping everything. That'd be amazing. But he becomes everything we could ever want. And it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter what problems come our way, because he is our firm foundation. Not our understanding, right? It's not about us. It's about him. And so no matter what problems come, no matter what things happen, God's still bigger. He's greater still. It doesn't matter what happens in your life. When he is your firm foundation and you've fully put your trust in him and say, you know what? I don't really understand the things that I'm seeing, but I get you. And you are greater than anything that I could ever say. I don't even completely understand you. But I'm not only going to believe, but I'm going to fully trust. No matter what my eyes see, I'm going to look past the waves. I'm going to acknowledge that my sin was deep. Your grace was deeper. My shame was wide, but your arms were wider. And my guilt was great, but your love was greater still. The greatest way for us to experience comfort and joy this Christmas is to make Christ our cornerstone. And so my challenge to us this morning in order for us to have both belief and trust, we need to understand who he is. And, and, and not, not from this place of like, I need to make sure that one plus one equals two. It's faith. It's complete and total reckless abandonment on our behalf that goes, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but he who lives in me. 
He is the one. He is the one in Philippians that has started this work and he will see it through to the finish. He is the one that has chosen us, adopted us, redeemed us, called you a son and daughter of the living King. And so the step for us to have belief and trust, to have comfort and joy, to have full assurance is to dive in. Right? Don't just stick your toe in the water. Jump in. And he will be there. Through every problem that you ever have, God will show up. He will be present. And he will get you through the moment. Are you willing to have full trust in him today? Let's pray. God, I thank you for who you are. Lord, I pray that as we move through the Christmas season, as we look towards all the busyness and the things that come, I pray that we will not lose sight of what Christmas is. It is the celebration of the birth of your son who will eventually free us from the debt of sin because he will go to a cross even for those who denied him and he will say I can pay your debt all you got to do is say yes Lord if there's anyone in here this morning that's been struggling to handle everything on their own they've been too focused on the waves and the crashing and the shrinking walls around them God, I pray that this morning you'll take them and you'll say, let me be your cornerstone. I don't want to just be a pebble in your life, but I want to be a boulder. I, I, I want to be the center of everything because I am greater than every problem that you have, every problem that you will have. I am everything. Help us to be expectant for you to move in our hearts Thank you for this lesson of Zechariah. That even through our disbelief, even through our failings, you are greater still. Move in our hearts, move in this place. Help us to be a church and a people that moves beyond these walls and loves those around us, carrying your light with us. It's in your son's name I pray and God's people said.